You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome to ODI, everyone. Uh, my name is Marta Foresti. I'm one of the managing directors here, and I'm very pleased to see all of you here and a special welcome to our online audience to what is, I think, an exciting, important, urgent debate about aid. Um, let me just begin by making a, the kind of statement one will want to do at the end of a debate of this kind. And that is that the UK, there is no doubt in my mind that the UK has been the global leader in setting the international development um, agenda worldwide, but also that the UK has led the way in aid management, in setting aid strategies, in leading debates about aid spending, and ways in which aid can make a real difference. And I say that as a proud European. So it's especially, I think, useful to have the opportunity to spend a couple of hours today um, reflecting a little bit of what the history of this 20 years journey has been and also what's ahead of us uh, for the future of, um, of UK aid and development strategies. Um, this 20 years journey is one where ODI and DFID have been fellow travellers. It's definitely been the case for the 12 years or so that I've been uh, part of this journey and we'll hear a lot about DFID um, during this event today. So let me allow me to say a couple of things about ODI and the aid agenda very briefly. At ODI, we take the business of doing aid very seriously. Um, we are interested in the way aid is delivered, how aid money is being sent, spent, and whether aid uh, makes uh, a difference. The one thing we do not do at ODI, and I am proud of that, is that we try hard not to jump on bandwagon or ride media storms about whether aid is a good thing or a bad thing, or whether aid works, and we, treat, we try to you know, keep calm and carry on and keep the focus on how aid works and whether and whether the way is, um, is spent, is invested, and the way is done uh, can make the difference. And we try to do our bit uh, to try that, um, to, to make, you know, to help with that endeavor. And the paper that we launched today, Craig's and Brendan's paper on the politics of the results agenda is just the latest example of our attempt to try to work the problem, look inside, um, and see how things can be done differently is the latest of a series of uh, work that tried to look at doing development differently and doing development better. Uh, we also, just to reassure you, don't only work for DFID. We work with a range of um, agencies around the world, uh, try to help devise better strategies and better ways, um, and better ways of, of working. So um, with that in mind, um, I... Um, I encourage all of you to stay engaged with us um, in this work because it's the kind of work that doesn't go away where the titles of the Daily Mail go away. So we keep at it and we keep trying to work the problem and trying uh, to make aid better. Uh, of the many things, that, the many interesting findings of Craig's and Brendan paper, one that struck me uh, the most, or one of those that struck me the most, is one that states that the commitment to 0.7% of national GDP to aid spending has been both a blessing and a curse for DFID at the times of, uh, of austerity, and that, and it calls for a different, more honest, more open debate with the public about how aid works, and on that I hope today will help to make a contribution to. And before I hand over to Bronwyn, let me just say how pleased I am that both the paper and the debate today is very much centered on the role of politicians in, serving, in, in setting the agenda. Too often we assume that there is something inherently technocratic or bureaucratic about 
monitoring systems, evaluations and results, whereas as we will hear, this is at the heart, goes at the heart of the politics of aid. And I can't think of anyone better than um, Secretary of State who has served um, in DFI to share their experience and their reflections um, on that. So um, the other thing I'm really looking forward to today is here from Bronwyn Maddox, who is going to chair this event. Bronwyn is the director of the Institute for Government, which of course is sort of a think tank that looks at how government works and how decisions are made across government, which I think is going to be a key bit of insights today, because as much as we talk about dividend aid, we really need to place that debate in the broader political landscape in UK government. Before joining the Institute for Government, Bronwyn was a journalist and was the editor and the chief executive of Prospect magazine. And before that, she was chief foreign commentator and foreign editor for The Times and worked before also um, at the Financial Times. And again, commenting on a range of both domestic and international um, debates, which is exactly what we need today um, to have a really impactful, thoughtful um, debate on aid. So Bronwyn, without further ado, please. Very much indeed for that introduction and also for that central point um, of bringing the politics into it, which is what this report is about. Uh, it is too easy, as, as we um, know from technocratic discussions in many fields, to uh, regard politics as this nuisance that somehow crashes in and stops everyone perfecting the machine or perfecting what they're doing or running the country. And the strength of this report is it sets out to, uh, to talk about that and the strength of our panel today. So that's the report whereby Craig and, 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 and Brendan, which is launched today, which is that precise question, uh, a kind of narrow question, if you like, within the, 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 the aid discussion of, um, of the politics of the results agenda in, in DFID, but of course, the much broader question we have uh, we have set for us today of DFID at 20, what, what have we learned and where next? Well, I'm going to be putting questions to the panel. We're going to talk really briefly. Please do send in your questions, which I will get on this, this iPad. And um, we'll have a good time for discussion uh, after the panel discussion. We've got uh, more than half an hour uh, for that. Uh, you can tweet as well on hashtag DFID at 20. Please do. And with that, let me um, uh, just say briefly, um, uh, welcome and his brief introduction to today's speakers. We've got Douglas Alexander, who was Secretary of State for International Development from 2007 to 2010, not quiet years. Andrew Mitchell, uh, same role, 2010 to 2012. Lynn Featherston, Parliamentary Under Secretary of State, at DFID 2012 to uh, 2014. And Craig Volter is one of the two authors of this report with Brendan sitting over there, uh, ODI research fellow and co-author of this, this, this report. Um, Craig, you're going to kick off for us by uh, taking us down to the, the question addressed in your report. And just tell us for a start what you mean by the results agenda and then what you found. Sure. Thanks. First to say it's fantastic to be on a panel like this. Um, delighted to be here. Um, you know, we, we set out in the report to, to outline a history of DFID through the lens of the results agenda, right? So you'll see a lot of detail in about DFID itself. And defining results and defining the results agenda, we have to separate those two things out. On the one hand, you have results. Colloquially speaking, we're all interested in whether DFID or aid more broadly is achieving results, the outcomes of aid, right? The results agenda is a particular political means for trying to achieve that, which has had very serious management implications within DFID and across UK aid in terms of centralized target setting, aggregating project numbers up to a whole, and, and a range of other things that have come along with it, including a lot of you know, encouraging a lot of specificity about 
what projects can achieve ahead of time, and then tracking them along those, along those goals. You want to know more about okay. what I've found now? No, 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 no um, just a bit on, on what you found, but also um, mm. how do you really separate the results and the results agenda? Because we all know the political pressure to demonstrate results uh, in a department now of 13 billion or, or so a year. Mm. Um, aren't you setting aside that too lightly, some might say? Not, not at all. I think a results agenda has to be fit, fit for purpose. Right? It has to actually support aid to be more effective, to be more accountable. And the argument in our paper doesn't necessarily do that. I mean, what we try and do is step back from just this narrow results debate. As you say, it can get too narrow. Step back and take a look at what have we learned when you look at how politics has influenced management over, over these 20 years. And what you learn is that a political agenda like the results agenda can really have a lot of influence over how aid is managed. It has a huge influence however, how over aid is managed. You know, demands for accountability as important as they are, have a huge influence over whether you can do effective aid on the ground. And so, you know, that's, that's our first point, if you like, is a kind of starting point of our paper, is that the politics really influences the management. We have to be aware of that, because it can both support and challenge effective aid. Let me just, just, just try to get a nugget of, mm. uh, uh, from you of exactly what you think the results agenda is, is doing wrong, or, or, or what, the, what the malign effects are of this, before we go on to... Sure. Talk about the, the politics. Here. Let me give one, one caveat to that first, if you don't mind. It's just to say that I think the focus on results is absolutely essential. There's no debate on that as far as I'm concerned. You have to be focused on what aid can achieve. But the challenge that it brings is that when you start to centralise um, target setting from government, and bear in mind we're working in other people's countries, it can create some bad incentives within the organisation. So, for example, it can lead to a focus on uh, short-term results over kind of longer-term, wider processes of change, right? It can lead to prioritising the, the views and, and the needs of UK taxpayers over the people's countries that we're working in. And it can also lead to this idea that we can be certain about what we'll achieve. If you start fixing targets and asking organisations to meet them, there is an incentive for them to kind of say, yes, definitely, we can meet them. There's a certainty that comes with that, which doesn't actually align very well with how we know how aid works in practice. We're often working on really intangible, difficult issues in other people's countries. So it comes with a lot of challenges, however important the agenda is. Okay, thanks for that, because there's a lot to debate just, just packed into that. Mm. Um, Douglas, let's go to your, your experience and what you make, um, not just of what Craig said, but of um, <coughs> how you set the goals for, for DFID. Well, Bronwyn, thank you for that introduction. Thank you to Craig for the report, of which more later, and also thank you to ODI. Um, along with the International Development Select Committee, I've got um, Malcolm Bruce, its former chair, sitting in front of me. I regarded uh, ODI and the Select Committee respectively as both my mentors and tormentors when I was Secretary <laughs> of State. So uh, I, I'm looking forward with a certain trepidation to the discussion that we have today. In all seriousness, ODI have given extraordinary thought leadership over those 20 years and for that I think all of us on this panel should be hugely grateful. Um, we've all seen the television pictures of Hurricane Irma in recent days um, and its terrible destructive power. I was talking to a climatologist last week who said one of the worst mistakes that you can make is to confuse the climate with the weather. And by that he uh, went on in very technical terms to explain exactly what he meant. But I think that's useful in understanding Craig's report because it seems to me we need to differentiate between the news of politics and the climate of ideas. And that is important because we tend to live, and a lot of the commentary lives in the weather of politics, Politics profoundly affects the climate of ideas, but what were the ideas that have shaped DFID over the last 20 years? I would cite 
two very specific examples from my time as Secretary of State. Firstly, the advent of the global financial crisis. It undoubtedly changed the fiscal environment amongst donors in the North. It also had a profound effect on public attitudes in the North towards experts, towards governments, towards elites more generally. And in that sense, I think it's important to recognise that in the North, there was a profound impact uh, caused by 2007, 2008. Indeed, I would argue 2007, 2008 is going to be judged one of those years, perhaps like 1989, 1945, on which people's sense of how the world worked changed, and that's had a profound effect on the discourse around development. I'm happy to talk about that. In, in what way? Just well, in, in a sense that in the 10 years up until 2007, there was a general narrative, a meta-narrative that said the world is coming together um, and more people are having the opportunity to benefit from a coincidence of trade technology liberalisation. A billion people entering the labour market, people advancing into a global economy with the result that we had lifted more people out of poverty in recent years than in recent centuries. Um, in the North, that discourse has been challenged more effectively since 2007, to, uh, 2007 than in the years preceding it, with people saying exactly those forces, trade technology liberalisation, have actually disempowered the many, enriched the 1%, and actually disadvantaged significant numbers. And the politics of populism that challenges aid draws energy from that alternative narrative that simply wasn't a feature of the pre-crisis world. The second feature I would draw out though, the second from the climate of ideas if you like, is the changing geography of poverty. And I feel if there was a, a gap in this report, it was the extent to which policymakers of all hues were seeking to come to terms with a changing geography of poverty by 2007. Uh, 2007. The sense that by that time, we broadly knew how to deliver aid effectively in relatively stable, very poor, but benign environments across sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere in the world. And actually the new challenge was to see how do we deliver aid effectively in conflict-affected and fragile states in particular. And I do think, truthfully, there is a tension there between the thought leadership that DFID historically has shown in the aid community as it moved towards conflict-affected and fragile states and the results-based agenda that the report discusses. My final observation, Bronwyn was suitably disciplining on us to be short, is on the results-based agenda, and in particular the politics of the results-based agenda, there are ditches on both sides of the road. One ditch is a lack of accountability. I do believe, in terms of aid effectiveness, you have an equal responsibility to the world's poor and to the British taxpayer. And it was it would be a department living on borrowed time if it didn't recognise both of those responsibilities. But at the same time, if you have a public discourse around aid that shouts ever louder about not just transparency but corruption, the only word the British public are going to hear is corruption. And if we want not to have a self-defeating narrative about aid, then perhaps we need a more balanced approach than the politics of the results-based agenda has delivered in recent years. Douglas, thanks for that, and thanks for taking us up to uh, what you call the climate of ideas, uh, because it has been an extraordinary 20 years. We've had, I mean, not just the particular challenge of, of 2007, 2008, um, to our model of organising things, if you like, 
Um, but a, a kind of, it seems to me, growing 20-year debate uh, about development itself, about what works and what doesn't, uh, with challenges from Paul Collier, Bill Easterly, even Joe Stiglitz saying, look, um, if, if you haven't got good government there, um, you re there really is such a thing as wasting all the money and taking issue with some, some of the uh, old development enthusiasms. Um, and you've got new, new causes for development and, and new claims on that uh, rising up at the same time. And you have, um, which fell in your time as well, um, particular um, torments to pick up your word, uh, such as Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, which taught us something as well about uh, whether we can uh, help countries in precisely the way that we thought uh, we could at the time. I'm using we in a very general sense there. Um, let's come back to some of those questions, um, because this is exactly the, the, the subject of, of, of today's discussion. Um, Andrew, the, the, how, how would you respond to these, these two? Not just the results agenda, but the kind of uh, what we now should think about uh, what works in aid. Well, I, first of all, I broadly agree with everything Douglas has said. Um, and let me pay tribute to ODI as well, who I see Simon and Alison here from its, uh, its, uh, its previous heads. Um, and certainly when I was Secretary of State, I upped the amount of money that was made available to ODI, uh, not because I wanted them to agree with the government, but because I wanted them to give some real depth to British international leadership in this area. And uh, I'm very pleased to see this report today. I, I, you challenged Craig to, on the, the, where he disagreed with the results agenda. And I disagree with all three points that he made, which, which is merely to say that I think that the uh, agenda is even stronger than is set out in his report. You made him think of three problems. I think those three problems don't exist. And there's a couple of points in the report, which I think is an excellent report, where I, which I think are self-serving and wrong, which uh, I hope you'll give me an opportunity to, to talk about in a moment. Now, the, the, I think that DFID has had 20 pretty good years. I mean, any government department dealing in this area is bound to face enormous challenges. And the approach that I tried to take when I became Secretary of State was to accept that actually the brouhaha and hurly-burly of politics can be quite irritating and that this is a British agenda. And what we set out to do was really to build an additional floor on the, on the building that Labour had, had done when they set up DFID and under... Uh, Claire Short and Hillary and Douglas's tutelage. We didn't want to dismantle anything. We wanted to build on it. But we had an analysis which said there are three or four absolutely key priorities. One is to uh, incorporate DFID rather better into Whitehall. There's a, a point in the report that is made that I uh, mentioned to Craig, which is that from time to time, DFID felt a bit like a rather well-upholstered NGO moored off the coast of Whitehall. And it needs to be more wired into to to Whitehall, and uh, actually the setting up of the National Security Council did an awful lot to, to do that, as well as the fact that when William and I took over our respective departments, we made it absolutely clear that DFID wasn't going back into the <coughs> Foreign Office, which in a, in a sense settled definitively that debate, although I accept that recently it's been slightly reopened, but basically it, it settled it for, for that period of time. Secondly, the conflict agenda, which we regarded as vital because, as Sir Paul Collier said, conflict is development in reverse, and we thought we needed to focus very carefully on that, and it was a co coalition, uh, a key coalition priority. Um, and and uh, thirdly, to uh, 
recognise that the way in which poor people lift themselves out of poverty above all is through being economically active and having a job and that sometimes the NGOs felt that the private sector was the enemy of development. We wanted to show that the private sector was the engine of development. And fourthly, the results agenda. So that, those were the four things. Now, on the results agenda, uh, I'd, lo I'd love to say that it was you know, a deep intellectual insight but I think it was just pure common sense. And when I was Secretary of State, I ran a, uh, a group which differed, serviced and policed of, of donor ministers, particularly European uh, donor ministers, where we would get together and discuss these things. And it became very clear indeed that the results agenda, as we set it out, had uh, received huge amount of acceptance. And all around the world, donor nations, accepted this, and indeed uh, countries like uh, Rwanda and Ethiopia and so on, accepted the priority of this. Why? Because you will never, in a time of austerity, sustain support for international development uh, against the uh, Daily Mail, against the, those who say that charity begins at home, to which I always used to say, but it doesn't stop there. You will never maintain that unless you can demonstrate results. And it's pure common sense. If you're spending taxpayers' money at a time when competition for taxpayers' money has never been greater. You've got to demonstrate why you're doing it so that you can satisfy at least reasonable taxpayers that it's an investment in their future, their children, their grandchildren's future, which really, really uh, matters. And so I think it's just good common sense. And I so, so the points on which you, you uh, specifically disagree... Well, all three of them I disagree yeah, but, about. But, 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 uh, um, the, the results of gender is worth having... All right, all of it. Yeah. Yep. So, oh, the three, but you forced him to yeah. produce three <coughs> negatives. So, so uh, you know, I, and I. Well, they, were, they were embedded in what he was saying. Yeah. Was well, let me let me let me um, let me come back to that. The 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 importance, of, and there's a little bit in the three points that he identified, which answer to this is there has always been a tendency, because Britain is so good at international development. What we do is is world leading. I used to say mainly to tease the Daily Mail that while America was a military superpower, Britain was a development superpower. Um, but uh, uh, there was a slight tendency in the sector sometimes to say to politicians and taxpayers, listen, Sonny, we know what we're doing. Just give us the money and don't you bother your pretty little head about it. And I thought it was very important to say that with a, the, the point seven, with politicians you know, putting taxpayers' money, investing taxpayers' money in this sector very greatly. I used to sit around the cabinet table while my colleagues' budgets were being shredded, uh, almost embarrassed by the fact that we had, but very proud that we'd stood by the point seven. You've got to demonstrate that it's being well spent. And that's the reason for the ICAI and it's the reason for the, the uh, results uh, agenda. And to show people that uh, th this is not something they just have to take on faith, but there is a real reason why uh, we're doing this and to demonstrate that through the results agenda. All right, Andrew, Andrew thanks very much indeed for that. Again, lots that we can come back on. Lynn, um, what's your response to this? And also, if you could give us a sense of your experience during the coalition government of whether conservative and liberal um, views of, of uh, development aligned. Yes, well, of course, I wasn't Secretary of State. Unlike the other two, I was an undersecretary, um, which meant I had a very different view. And during the coalition era, where I felt really I was leading an insurgency, basically. Um, because as an undersecretary, people don't have to tell you things. Um, they can make your 
workload, your payload, very, very heavy, so you haven't got time to do other things. So I developed a different technique. I, I chose three or four things on which I wanted to make progress, probably my no most notable amongst them, the FGM campaign and the disability framework and the international LGBT area. Um, and to make progress, I focused my energy, what was left after my long payload, on those kind of things. But what, what I would say is I thought, I suppose I thought when I came in, I didn't know much about international development in the way of politics. <laughs> um, but I thought that the results agenda was exactly what Andrew said. I thought his um, multilateral and bilateral aid reviews were fantastic. I thought for the first time they kind of said to organizations that were used to getting money from DFID, <coughs> actually, you're not, it's not a job for life. You're not going to get money every year automatically. And I thought that was a really a good step forward. And of course, you have to have a results agenda. I thought that was incredibly important. But I saw two things. One, DFID is full of civil servants who are born with the right stuff in them. I don't know how it happens, but they just want, they want to change the world for the better, and they use all their energy to do so. Um, and um, in terms of the results agenda, they swung immediately to the current Secretary of State. And things changed quite rapidly um, towards economic development as opposed to kind of where it had come from. And I don't disagree that you don't need good economic development. Um, and the results agenda itself, to me, what I saw meant counting things and endless bureaucracy. I felt, like if I gave you one example, I went to Zambia and I visited a school and this meant that X number of children would be educated for X number of years and that was countable. But the teachers couldn't read or write. And so I thought the qualitative um, uh, part of that agenda was really not equal to the task. And we were able to defend ourselves publicly, but we weren't brave publicly in explaining exactly how challenging the environments that DFID worked in were. It was a very simplistic thing. Look, look what a good job we're doing from the numbers. And I also felt that was backed up by even more bureaucracy with business cases. I mean, the end-to-end -end review changed some of that, but when, when I was there, I spent my life reading business cases, and uh, civil servants spent their life writing business cases, and the cut and paste was often wrong because it became casual and it became procedural. And um, what you need is an absolute balance between the absolute rigor of a results agenda that has room for the, um, the challenges in working in conflict and fragile states. So that's a, a swift analysis of uh, my time at Tifford. Thanks very much indeed. Well, we've got to I mean, I'm going to just discuss this a bit with the panel and then, and then come to the many questions that I know are out there. Um, I want to come at really two things. Um, one is um, what the purposes of uh, British aid development spending ought to be. Now, uh, poverty reduction is there. Uh, you know, is the stated aim. We're in uh, times, though, when there are many, many claims on uh, this, from um, you know, military help to um, uh, to to you know, we trade with the Brexit agenda coming up, and so on. Um, how how much uh, do you think um, that the um, British aid should, uh, and how much can it stick to the very pure notion of um, uh, of, of simply 
poverty reduction in other countries. And then I want to get to the, the question of communicating this with the, uh, the, with the public um, and where the, 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 the politics in the widest sense of, um, of aid now are, what the, the, what the feeling is. Um, Douglas, do you want to start on this? And then I'll, I'll come to Craig and the rest. Um, I'm interested that you use the word pure. I would use the word clear in mm. terms of the purpose mm. of DFID. Um, you know, for me, the alleviation of extreme poverty is perhaps the greatest generational challenge that we face, along with climate change. And in that sense, I think British aid has a significant contribution to make. And I don't think we should ever resile from the moral clarity of saying this is a wrong that can be righted. And Britain has a contribution to make, along with others internationally, to righting that wrong. So it struck me that the narrative around development uh, can reasonably include both moral clarity and strategic self-interest. It is both right and in Britain's interest to live in a fairer, more equal, more sustainable world. And in that sense, my worry about the politics of the results-based agenda is that far from strengthening the narrative around aid, it has on occasion weakened it. And if you look at the choices that you face as a Secretary of State, should we spend £10 million more on um, abolishing school user fees in Tanzania, or should we spend £10 million more on security sector reform in Somalia? If you are constrained and, and prescribed by the, res the politics of the results agenda, you'll spend the money in Tanzania, you won't spend the money in Somalia. And I think that there is a strong case for saying, not least giving, given the changing nature of the geography of poverty and the thought leadership that Britain historically has aspired to in this space, we should be willing to both deliver excellence in how we deliver aid in Tanzania, but be brave, courageous and honest with the public about why we're also working in a country like Somalia. Thanks. Craig, Craig do you want to come in on this? And also, you know, we were talking before this event started um, on the proportion of, of DFID's budget that actually is already spent by other departments, which people might like to hear about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there's an estimation at the moment that 26% of, of aid spending is now going through other government departments, and that's a, a massive challenge both for uh, DFID and transferring some of its experience over time, and for the other government departments having a, a rapid increase in aid spending, which comes with all sorts of different strings in terms of transparency and accountability, rightly so, that I think many of those government departments aren't set up to do. And in fact, the, the, scrutiny, the scrutiny bodies that do exist that have subjected these departments and the cross-departmental spend, such as ICAI and, and others, have suggested that there, there's real challenges there. So, you know, there are, there are many scrutiny bodies that exist and they're showing there are challenges in, in exactly this area in kind of, in ensuring that it is used for the purposes of poverty reduction, even if there are, and I think there have been forever, um, diverse aims that are bound up within that. Um, first of all, I think, I think there is a danger that you over-intellectualise the results agenda, and I think we're getting a, a, a little bit of that. Um, it is the job of the Secretary of State to determine uh, the uh, balance of the arguments between the uh, Somalian security and conflict spending and schooling in, in Tanzania and to reach a, a judgment. And uh, certainly when I was Secretary of State, I expected to be able to justify the results of that spending on either, in either example. I, I certainly didn't think you just 
went for the easy results in the easy uh, sectors. Um, so, so I would uh, argue uh, that you mustn't interpret the results uh, agenda too narrowly. If I can just return to the three points that Craig made earlier, which, which in this excellent report, which things I thought stuck out as being wrong, on page 29... <laughs> It uh, says, yet some different civil servants had concerns, particularly in relation to the DRF and the, and the BAR, the bar processes. As one different staff member put it, the absurdity kicked in. Officers were competing with each other to deliver results. It really <coughs> encouraged an optimism bias. Everyone wanted a bigger budget and, and deliver bigger results, and this sent us in the wrong direction. Um, uh, that must have been a very junior official because the whole idea of the of the peer review of the bilateral aid review was to stop that happening. And it also, uh, the, whoever the official was who said that, is denigrating his colleagues, his or her colleagues, because uh, the uh, rigour with which officials in DFID conducted the bilateral aid review uh, certainly transcends anything like that. There's then a quote from Iben, 2015-20, in 2012, Diffid claimed to the British public that it had secured schooling for 11 million children, more than we educate in the UK, but at 2.5% of the cost. Everyone else involved in helping those 11 million children get to school had disappeared from the narrative. That, if I may say so, is a ludicrous statement. It's, you are, you're looking here, you're not seeking to denigrate the extraordinary work that's been done by all the people who will have been involved in getting those 11 million children to school. What you're doing is you're explaining to the British public in a very simple and direct way why uh, what we're doing is extremely good. And so far from denigrating it in that way, actually, that's an extremely good statistic. And it was one of Minou Shafiq's when she was my permanent secretary's favourite ones. And the third and final one, on page 32, I just used, is that in 2015, Aikai offered a heavy criticism of the results agenda. From an early stage, Aikai had been vocal about the counterproductive productive elements of DFID's results focus. This culminated in a review on DFID's approach to impact which argued that the results agenda had firmly established when and where taxpayers' money is being spent, but not what spending actually achieves. Now, that is, that is, if I may say so, is equally a ludicrous statement because the results agenda is supposed to go beyond the first part of that, where and when taxpayers' money is spent, into what it's actually being spent on. So, um, you know, that is, I think, uh, completely wrong. But with those three examples, I think it's a very good report. Now, in respect of other... In respect of other departments... Chandra has literally shredded. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, you know, I just think that yeah. those points are... You, you forced him to put up the negatives. Those broadly were the negatives. And I don't think... carefully put up both sides. And I don't think they are. Well, I don't think they are negatives. In terms yeah. of the other departmental spending, um, it's a very good point. You know, when Douglas and I were there, I think it was about 8%, I think, if, if, uh, if that... Um, and DFID and DFID officials had control over it. But equally, it was clear, particularly in the 2010 environment, that where other departments under the ODA rules could spend this money, it would have been you know, political and intellectual suicide for the Secretary of State to try and say, no, you can't have it. So, so the definition reigns supreme. And remember that the key pledge is not the money so much as the rules, because once the rules change or are disavowed, the DFID budget will be plundered by other stronger departments. And as I said in the House of Commons in the Queen's speech after the election, there's a danger that uh, Boris might uh, see the uh, DFID budget in much the way, the, the way that a Spanish pirate or sea captain 
would have viewed a sort of a, a vessel loaded with bullion, which they could climb aboard and plunder. So, you know, the rules are actually the critical thing. And, I have to and, say the Foreign Office does not look like, like one of Whitehall's strongest departments now or, or even... The, the, and, 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 Size of budget. Uh, well, you've seen that. You know, the foreign uh, office, uh, the foreign office with the, the two-hatted ministers. Hmm. You know, there's no doubt what's going on here, and uh, uh, we have to be careful of that. But the hmm. point is, it's the rules governing hmm. the spending which are which are the key, and that's why the ICI um, is able to is, is supposed to follow the spending regardless of what department it is in, and why the ICI, of course, reports to the International Development Select Committee and the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and other select committees argued that if they were spending the money, they should be accountable. But the fact is, ODA money is accountable in many ways, but through the ICAI, all ODA money, regardless of which department is spending it. Okay, Douglas Craig, then I'm going to bring in Len on something. very eloquently about a hypothetical future risk of the Foreign Office misspending ODA scorable money. I mean, we don't need to look in the crystal ball. Look at the Prosperity Fund. You know, that the idea that the Foreign Office has, on the basis of the order scorable rules, the capability to spend that money effectively, I'm afraid has already been disproved. And as somebody who served for two years in the Foreign Office and has a great deal of respect for that department, as well as three years as Secretary of State for DFID, I just make a point I made earlier. The currency of DFID is numbers. The currency of the Foreign Office is words. If you are a talented aspirant diplomat in the Foreign Office, you do not believe that your future is going to be dictated and your promotion achieved by the excellence of the aid effectiveness of the expenditure you oversee. You believe it's writing a brilliant document that secures this Brexit outcome or that international trade agreement. And the fact is, it's one of the reasons why 20 years on, I do think Britain has established that leadership role in international development. We had the humility to say the culture of the Foreign Office is fundamentally different from the culture of DFID and we are already living with the consequences of exactly the scenario that Andrew paints as a hypothetical scenario in terms of the misspending of aid. And we also have the consequence that the Daily Mail then attacks differed for spending money yeah. badly yeah. when in reality it's being badly spent by the Foreign right, Office. Can, 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 can I bring in Lynn on this? Uh, I, I, um, <laughs> you can come back and, and, and so can Craig. Um, Lynn, what you feel about the... Um, um, uh, spreading of money between different departments, well, um, and, and also where you think public opinion is on this? Well, I think, I think it was inevitable with a budget of that size in a time of austerity that other de departments would get the green-eyed monster and stare. And I, I know during my time there, I, I went to interminable meetings where I think it was the Home Office was trying to persuade me to agree to prisons being built with ODA money in some far-flung place because that would be good for us, um, which I obviously never allowed to happen in my era and never happened, but it was inevitable that there was creep. Where I think things got even more complicated from where I was standing, and don't forget, as a Liberal Democrat, I, I had more trouble with things like the Prosperity Fund, where I saw um, relationships growing in order to spend money in a way that I didn't think was entirely kosher, basically. Um, and I would get very frustrated when the model was to help the, the poorest and most fragile states in the world. And um, there would be many trips to Tanzania. You know, that was the most frequently visited country. In terms of public opinion, I think it is, it is absolutely fed by a Daily Mail agenda, 
that focuses on things that are never explained properly. Um, I, I can't remember recently, it was the girl band in, remind me which country. Okay, but, you know, I, I would... <laughs> well, that's what happens. That's all you hear. But as someone who is the Violence Against Women champion across the whole world, this is an amazingly important agenda. Women who are affected, they are the poorest and most fragile of, of, uh, across the world. They, they, they are the recipients of violence beyond what anyone can measure. And the fact that the, in order to reach young girls and build confidence, you may use what are, look like um, uh, a strange methodology. Actually, these things have been worked out in country working with young people. And so I think public opinion is wrongly formed by the Daily Mail and that there's never been enough platforms for, say, someone like me to go out and argue the case because Daily Mail won't report me. They'll report Andrew, they'll report um, Douglas, but they won't report what I say about violence against women because that's not in their interest to know that this actually might have been an effective avenue to build confidence amongst young girls and give them something in life. So... I think we're, we're up against it in terms of public opinion. Lynn, thanks very much indeed for that. Okay, let me take quick comments for the, the three of you, and then I want to bring in Brendan. Right now, Andrew. Um, well, the, the we'll uh, scrapping of the so-called Ethiopian Spice Girls was absolutely disgraceful, and I hope I excoriated the decision in the Sunday Times a, a few weeks later, but it was a very, very bad uh, decision indeed. Um, the, what Douglas and I are saying is not, is not different. Uh, I think that we are probably both disagreeing with Bronwyn that the Foreign Office isn't powerful, because it is extremely powerful. But um, uh, there is a danger in the Foreign Office. I used to tease diplomats that they thought that development was the ambassador's spouse's favourite charity. And, and, uh, and uh, also, um, you know, the classic example of this is that the Foreign Office decided to spend money on studying the mating habits of the flat, flat fish in Madagascar. And when the Daily Mail, quite rightly... Uh, complained about this. The Foreign Office said, oh, it's nothing to do with us, it's all to do with DFID, because it's DFID's money. And therefore, Foreign Office neatly got DFID into the Daily Mail's favourite position on something that was entirely, was on something that was entirely the Foreign Office's fault. And it's essential that, you know, that the Foreign Office justifies its spending, spending money in China today, but, you know, it's in a very narrow way, it might be, uh, it might be justifiable. I, the first thing I did when I got into the Secretary of State's office was to say no more money for China unless it's legally due. But the Foreign Office wants to spend bits, little bits of money and because it's good for the British relationship with China and they try and slide it under the ODA rules. Now, if, you, if you're going to do that, at the very least, the Foreign Office and Foreign Office ministers must justify it and explain it and not dump the blame on Diffin. Quick comments. If you think about what have been the fundamentals of different success and of development success in the UK over the last 20 years, I would argue it was the decision to untie aid and the risks of the retying of aid, it seems to me, are real. Secondly, the establishment of a discrete cabinet rank department and the risk of the genuine independence of DFID with the appointment of two ministers of state jointly answering to Priti Patel and Boris Johnson are very real. And thirdly, an upward movement in public support for the legitimacy of taxpayer funding being used for development. It seems to me all three of those essential foundations of progress over the last 20 years are now in jeopardy. And so forgive my concern, but 
if the last 20 years have been years of progress, I think we're looking ahead to years of certain jeopardy. Thanks, Craig, and then I'm going to come to Brenda. Thanks, yeah, I guess I have um, no choice but to come back on this results agenda issue right now. And I think the first thing is, as a political argument, Andrew, I agree with you. You absolutely had to make the case. And I don't think anyone would disagree with you on that point. I think, you know, I don't think we've over-intellectualized. I think the results agenda has been over-operationalized. It's been dug right into the fabric of DFID, and people don't feel like they have the flexibility and space to learn, to change, and to get aid right. And, you know, the, the quote that you pulled out, was from ICAI, the organization you set up to scrutinize aid, and it said that the results agenda had led to a, sh a focus on short-term <coughs> efficiency and accountability over long-term sustainable change. So this was ICAI. So uh, for that, I think we have, to, we have to be concerned about the results of the results agenda. It can't just be a political argument. Okay, thanks for that. Let me come to Brendan. Um, uh, Brendan, there's a lot of interesting points you might want to come in on, but I want to ask you one in particular. We haven't really talked about the part of DFID's uh, aid that goes through multilateral agencies. Um, and um, uh, I wondered how you felt in, in putting together this report with Craig, how that fitted together with the results agenda, you know, whether DFID is held directly accountable for that, that spending and where that might go in the future. We don't so much address, in fact, uh, the multilateral aid um, reporting in this. I think for us the focus is very much uh, on the bilateral aid and the money that gets spent through, uh, uh, through the country offices. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I think uh, traditionally multilateral aid has been much less easy to hold to account um, uh, than... Um, uh, than, than the bilateral aid, and I think to some degree um, it, sli it, it slipped, uh, well, certainly it slipped through, I would say it slipped through to some degree this, um, this particular report. Um, I mean, I... I, I th Never mind, there's many, many other good things in it. Um, <laughs> would, you, would you like to come back at some of the, the, the wider discussion then um, uh, that, that we've been having? Sure. I mean, of course, I sort of, um, I, I sort of agree agree with Craig's points. I mean, I think the uh, it's not, not uh, inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I think there's a few there's a few things uh, uh, that come out of this in terms of going forward and what sort of management uh, reforms uh, Diffin might want to want, want to um, to put in place. Um, I mean, I think. Uh, the conclusions that we sort of that we were coming to um, is that. You know, the results agenda was a, was a much better fit for some kinds of aid than other kinds of aid. I think it was a really good fit for some of the simpler and shorter kinds of uh, theory of change um, that DFID were doing, but lot less good in some of the more complex environments that Douglas Alexander was talking about um, and some of the more complex interventions. And I think for us, a lot of what we were trying to look at was how you could get a management system that fits the broader spectrum of aid that DFID, that DFID is trying to do. And there's a political commitment that you need to make at that point. Do you want to continue to do that broader spectrum of aid? Um, you could simplify it, do a lot fewer of the more complex, more interesting, more structural uh, sort of uh, forms of aid, but that, and that would then maybe fit in better with the results with the results agenda and the sort of political commitments and the political stance that you're taking. But I, I mean, I think it's quite important that that, that DFID continue the sort of broader spectrum of aid um, and some of the more the more deeper and more interesting forms of aid, and that. I think we came to a position where that would require 
like less, fewer centralized, aggregated and fixed results targets. Um, and a sort of move away from a thinking that looks towards pr uh, predictable results. And that's kind of the uh, way we're coming to in the, in the paper. Let's, uh, let's go now to questions and uh, also questions uh, that people want to send in online. Um, but let's, let's start with those in the room. Right, one over here first out of. I'm going to take them in groups of three. Um, and I'll make sure that at least someone on the panel answers each one. From GB, um, so one of one of the biggest um, uh, one of the biggest outcomes of the one of the one of the outcomes of the results agenda has been one of the biggest victims of the out, of the results agenda has been budget support. Um, so we we don't see DFID doing general budget support anymore. We don't actually know for sure if it's still doing sector budget support, but it seems to be that we're doing some some form of of continued support to sectors. Uh, sector governments in developing countries. I just want to know from the panel um, whether they think that we've moved too far the other way around the issue of something like budget support, and particularly not just because in many cases governments are best placed to deliver both um, effectively and efficiently, but also because it disciplines, um, provides the incentives for different country offices to be focused on trying to look at the system, understand the system in which they're working in, whether that be in one particular sector or across government, and find a way to effectively influence that and shape it for the better so that we have a more sustainable impact in the way that we're delivering aid. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Jonathan Glennie, I used to be at ODI, now I'm at Ipsos. Um, just a, a question for Andrew and then maybe for Douglas, something you said about what DFID's achieved. Um, it's kind of interesting having Andrew saying, you know, you up money for ODI, because what you appear to be doing is kind of the intellectual equivalent of putting your fingers in your ears. I mean, this is not Craig's or Brendan's personal views. I'm a massive fan, by the way, of a lot of the stuff you've done when you were at DFID. So it's not at all personal, but, you know, this is not their personal views. This is based on a serious methodology, based on interviews with very senior people, <coughs> based on years and decades of programme analysis. One of the things that someone very wise said to me when I was here was that we don't know that much about aid effectiveness, but we do know that if people are not, beneficiaries are not participating and owning the agenda, it's much less likely to work. That, those, that, that language really has suffered in the last 10 years. You seldom hear a senior minister use that kind of language, and that was at the heart of the Paris agenda. So while I think you know, the results agenda and what you achieved is, has, has had very great positive impacts, I do think it's kind of weird not to listen to this very serious research evidence that's being placed before you. Uh, and then the second question really is for, for Douglas. I, I think one of the great impacts that DFID had in the early years was to break away from just the aid agenda. And it was a department for international development. And there was a big, strong link with trade. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of discussion about trade. And it seems to me that that focus of moving away from just aid has also suffered in the last five to six years. I remember speaking to the head of the OECD a few years ago. He said, let's stop, let's stop using the word aid. That was like five or six years ago. But... That hasn't been raised recently. It feels to me like, of course, we can keep using the word aid, but that, that focus of beyond aid seems, which we all thought would just keep on going, seems to have stalled. Okay. Thanks very much indeed. And I'm, I'm going to take a third one. Uh, we'll recap, there was someone... <coughs> there was a third one. Yep, here. here. Thanks. Thank you. Hi. Um, Alison Evans, currently um, Chief Commissioner of ICAI. And since ICAI has been mentioned, oh. I feel... Can I have a comment and a question? Yes, you can. Quick... quick uh, comment and um, Diana Good's here in the audience who, who led the review on impact so she may well like to, to chip in too. I mean I think 
Certainly since the, the review of, of impact was, uh, was published, we've done a number of reviews with ICAI where we would say this, this is a bit of a tension actually in the way uh, DIFID goes about it delivering results between the need for that real clarity of what you can deliver over the cycle of a program versus what is it contributing to, to in terms of longer term sustainable change. But actually interestingly, and I think we can overdo that tension a little bit, we've got to be careful, but one thing that's really interesting is that we've actually found that it leads quite often to DFID undervaluing the, num the amount of impact it's actually having. Because there's a tendency to do the counting of the number of kids in school places or, or whatever, feed that up upwards to support the, uh, the larger communication around results. And actually, there's a heck of a lot that's been achieved that mm. hasn't actually even begun to enter into those numbers. So we did a, a review looking at DFID's investment in WASH uh, interventions, and we found a whole range of impacts which were really very positive, but actually were not being communicated centrally. And so I think there's also a slight tendency to undervalue the, the impacts that are, being, that are being supported. My question is, coming back to the point about, you know, over the last 10 years, definitely, possibly 20, I mean, DFID's made a huge commitment to transparency and is something of a world leader in the area of transparency. At the same time, the volume of scrutiny has undoubtedly intensified not only formally, but informally. My question, I guess, for everyone is, what, a, what impact has that had on DFID? Um, and what are some of the lessons that we now need to pick up on, given the diffusion of odour spend beyond DFID? I guess there are odour is now chasing more priorities in the UK than it, probably, well, yeah. it, in, than it ever has done, really, or at least in the last 20 years. How can we make scrutiny fit for purpose in this new environment? Okay, thanks very much indeed. Let me just recap on those. Um, uh, thanks very much indeed for that one. And then at the beginning, we had what's happened to uh, general budget support and uh, generally what, uh, talking about what DFID's achieved, um, but um, uh, also about what's happened to the wider agenda about trade and development. Um, Andrew, let me start with you. I'll come to Lynn um, and then. On, uh, on budget support, uh, you're completely right. I mean, budget support is the best way of doing development if you can trust that the money is being well spent, if you, if you can follow the money. And although in my time I cut the amount of budget support uh, in terms of where it was used, it, you know, because the budget was increasing, it wasn't anything like this level, by about 50%, that was the rule that I employed. Um, and so, for example, in Ethiopia and Rwanda, where you really can follow the money very clearly, uh, I would have always continued using budget support, but the political arguments which you know, wax and wane in both those two countries made it very difficult to do so, and something that Hillary Benn recognised when he was the DFID secretary. And following the election in Ethiopia, 19 students were murdered by the regime. Uh, there had to be some sort of political change, uh, but yet if you cut development, you're not going to get at the elite in Ethiopia, you're merely going to take girls out of school. So, you know, the use of budget support gets buffeted politically, but there's no doubt at all where you can follow the money that it's definitely the best way of doing development. And I regret the fact that the politics have meant that we don't do it so much now. On the second point, with the greatest respect, the fact that I'm here debating this, saying that it's a very, very good report, but picking up the flaws, 
doesn't mean that I'm you know, sticking my fingers in my ears. And in the same way that uh, you expect, uh, quite rightly, me to listen to what ODI uh, says, I hope that you will also find some space for listening to what politicians say you know, in, in response, uh, it's called a debate, and it doesn't mean that I've doesn't mean that I've stuffed my fingers in my ears at all. Um, the, the the last point uh, which Alison made, um, you know, I, I agree with that. Um, I think uh, that uh, the, the the transparency agenda, you know, I think there's a lot of rubbish talked about uh, the extent to which uh, Diffid is isn't transparent. I think DFID is the most transparent department in Whitehall. We publish everything. Um, DFID publishes everything. And it sort of suffers from the Daily Mail uh, agenda, wh wh which almost always I find myself in very sharp disagreement with. But the, 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 the critical thing, I mean, what Douglas said about the three threats, uh, I, gr I agree with him. Those are the threats. And it's our job in Parliament and in the Conservative Party to make sure they don't materialise. But he's quite right, in my view, that those are three threats which must be uh, resisted. Um, but as far as the odour money is concerned, and uh, it is, in my view, it is absolutely essential that the battle is won, that odour is controlled by DFID as a responsible department, and that all odour spending is looked at by the ICAI. Because once, once you stop that, or you disaggregate it, you won't get the discipline that is essential. And it may not be possible to persuade the Daily Mail that this money is well spent. But at least if you've got the same intellectual rigor that the ICAI, that ICAI takes across all of ODA spending, and the departments know that they can't get away with uh, a lack of uh, supervision and scrutiny, then in my view, that is the right way to maintain that, that, that approach and that rigor. Okay, thanks. Lynn. Yes, I, I, when I came to Dippet, um, there were less and less governments being supported through budget support, and I thought, in a way, that was a tragedy because, you know, I would go to places and you, you might get a really good minister with no civil service and no machinery in which, you know, for, for payrolls and things like that. And, and their systems were not able to not be corrupt and therefore, politically, it was impossible, not, uh, impossible to continue budget support on any um, scale. And yet it really was the answer because until, unless and until you have governments who are able to do that, you're not really progressing. But thus it was not. And the other observation I'll make is that um, what I found, because I, I spent a lot of time in Africa, in Africa, um, and what I discovered about DFID was that its local offices, really where they, where they worked best and they had the ear of the prime minister and the government, and they were a friend, a, a critical friend quite of, often, had a huge impact, but that because of the results agenda and all of the pressures upon transparency and all of those things, they spent a vast amount of time uh, feeding that machine rather than getting out into the um, further areas outside the capitals where their knowledge and their ability made the greatest impact and difference and therefore their influence with that government. So I think we got into a kind of bad cycle, really, myself. But as I say, I was a mere undersecretary. Don't, don't do yourself down. Mm -hmm. uh, on it. Um, Lynn, uh, Craig. 
Sure, I mean, picking up Gideon's point on budget support, it's part of a wider conversation about aid effectiveness as it was seen under the Paris Declaration in 2005, right? And so I think what you actually see as you move from this kind of very internationalist uh, Paris Declaration agenda is a kind of pendulum swing towards this results agenda where we became more concerned about the impact of UK pounds, UK money, and less about these wider principles of contribution, partnership, and of course, crucially for budget support, country ownership. The idea being that if you give money to a foreign government and you can get the relevant degree of transparency and accountability out of it, you have more chance of getting a decent development return, right? And so the risk, I think, and again, I... I support the political argument for going after results, but the risk of operationalizing like this is you only care if you can track deliberately exactly what numbers a project has given you. And budget support, you can't often easily do that because you are relying on that country government to make good with that money. And you can't always have a direct, tangible, immediate benefit in, in the way that you might do with a, a project. Okay, thanks. And we're coming, there's some questions coming in on exactly that, which I'll ask in a second, Douglas. Um, I'm going to start with a personal confession. Um, it's not very in vogue in my party at the moment, but I believe in friendships beyond difference. And I genuinely like Andrew Mitchell. Um, uh, he's been a good friend, and there is much that he did in the department that I admire, but there are genuine differences between us, and let me share two. Firstly, in relation to the results agenda, I do think the operationalizing of the results agenda has two effects that have to be considered and are not universally benign. One is officials treasure what they measure. It structures a series of incentives towards officials in programme design that I think can constrict more than it broadens the terms of the policy debate. And secondly, I just tell you from having sat in the seat that however much secretaries of state assert that they are willing to calibrate the relative risks of a high-risk environment relative to a low-risk environment, they are also politicians. And in that sense, if they have created a context in which they are likely to be significantly more under siege in a department by choosing what may be a more innovative approach than a more standard approach, the tendency will be to preference the standard approach rather than the innovative approach. But there's a much deeper issue here, which is... What is the discourse around DFID and development in the United Kingdom? And it is the conceit of every incoming Secretary of State that they have a fundamentally different take on the department than their predecessor. I'm sure I was guilty of that, as surely as my successors were. But if we have, as I would argue, um, a series of Secretaries of State over the last 10 years whose reaction has been as follows. Oh my goodness, I had no idea how badly DFID was spending money under my predecessor. I'm now going to clean it up by more transparency, by a stronger focus on results, then actually it is a self-limiting and ultimately self-lacerating public discourse. And if you have secretaries of state who move, and I would honourably accept Andrew from this, who move the discourse from justice to charity and then take the discourse from how well is this charity spending its money, you end up in a radically different discourse from a justice-based narrative about development. And we talk in this conversation as if the Daily Mail is a force unto itself unrelated to the actions of politicians. The fact is, we've had situations in recent years where people from within DFID have been feeding the Daily Mail stories about how iniquitous is the spending of the department. And in that sense, I think there is a heavy responsibility on the political leadership of all political parties to uphold what was the core mission of DFID 20 years ago, which was never about charity, it was always about justice and recognise that that actually involves more 
than simply measuring at the same time as recognising the vitality and urgency of ensuring the British people understood the rationale for aid expenditure in the first place. Thank you. The Daily Mail is not here to defend itself. Um, that, that, that is not my role. But um, it seems to me we are being slightly blithe in using that as shorthand in, in kind of uh, setting aside two of the kinds of challenges uh, to DFID's record. One is the sort of efficiency uh, money not spent well, um, of which the St. Helena Airport, more than 250 million and so on, might be an archetype. The other seems to be more um, troubling, and we might come on to that, which is whether, for example, spending in Rwanda uh, should be looked at differently in, in the light of our allegations of, of, um, of, of um, abuses of human rights and so on by the government. And... Um, there's this kind of moral dimension of some of the British aid, which necessarily may change over years as, um, uh, as the countries we work with change. And I think we come on to that. Let me, I just want to bring in, I know there's a lot of questions here, which I will definitely come to. We've got good time. But I want to bring in two that are really on, on this um, from, from online. One from Irene Geet of Oxfam saying, has the results agenda helped DFID to be able to actually strengthen its account of the, the main routes for impacting on, on poverty reduction, uh, routes that are genuinely evidence-informed. And, uh, and she'd like uh, uh, actually some, some uh, account of what those are, what we actually know about uh, DFID's conclusions on those. And from uh, Sheila Page of the ODI, Craig's point about the results agenda is that it prioritizes UK objectives, not those of the recipients. And uh, can everyone comment on how this fits into the agenda of actually encouraging countries to develop their own capacity and objectives? So um, just two questions drilling down into exactly uh, how different should go about things. Uh, who, who'd like to start? Uh, Andrew. Andrew. Has the results agenda helped uh, DFID in the way that uh, your questioner asked? The answer is definitely yes, because it's helped, in my view, DFID sustain the argument which has been strong enough not to allow the arguments of those who are very sceptical about development to prevail. So my answer is uh, an unqualified yes to that. The, the second point about whether or not the objectives that the results agenda champions are British objectives rather than the objectives of the country in which we're seeking to help uh, my argument would be is that is a false uh, dichotomy because the whole essence of the work that DFID does uh, in countries is one of partnership with those countries. So if you are seeking to win and achieve results in a particular country, that will have been agreed with the country itself. And, and you know, we have learned the hard way in international development that where donors uh, and powerful nations seek to impose an ideology on a developing country, it doesn't work uh, spectacularly so with some of the things that the IMF did in the 70s and that the World Bank did in the 80s. So, so it's, a false, it's, it's a false... It's a false... did in Iraq. Yes, or, uh, ab absolutely. But it's, it's a false dichotomy, in my view, uh, that, uh, that you know, these are British objectives. And, and going back to something that was said earlier, I would argue that the whole of Britain's development policies are in Britain's national interest... Uh, what, what all the stuff we do is in Britain's national interest because it's after seeking what Douglas was talking about, which is international justice, where in our time we have an ability that no previous generations have had to do something about these appalling discrepancies of opportunity and wealth which exist in our world, but which we have an ability now fundamentally to affect. Um, yeah, I'll pick up on Irene from Oxfam's point. I mean, 
you know, at ODI, we do a, a ton of research on what makes for effective aid. Um, and I can't, I can't do justice to it now, but it's worth saying that a lot of, a lot of what comes out is around you know, a, a need for flexibility on the ground of how you operate, um, to be working with local priorities and to be sure about that, so you're, you're not imposing, as Andrew mentioned, um, that you engage with local politics, you help build institutions in ways that are sensitive to difference, all of these things. And you know, I think if you take a look at our paper, we kind of make the argument ultimately that the results of gender is a blunt instrument for trying to work in this way. It doesn't, it doesn't allow you to work in that way because it relies upon you chasing targets. <coughs> And that goes against fixed targets, bear in mind. And that goes against a lot of this kind of locally, locally orientated work, flexible work, um, being able to negotiate around these politics without feeling like you have to be uh, mandatorily going after a, a target that was set in Whitehall. It's not a target. <laughs> It's not, it's not a target. On, well, well, on the other one, on, on Sheila, on the UK objectives, because I, I, do you want Andrew to come back on that first? No, 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 no. keep going. Well, I, I, I would agree that it's partnership, and in that, you know, there's, there's many objectives that one day a country will be self-sustainable and will be a, a future trading partner. In, in another way, we won't have um, great swathes of people moving around the globe because of climate change. There are all sorts of self-interest involved or partnership interests. But where I think we're crossing a line right now, or rather I think we are crossing a line right now by tying aid and trade, and I think the emphasis has switched hugely in the last two to four years into how can we make money out of this? How can we trade? How can we improve our business um, delegations, how can we get contracts rather than uh, it's more what, what can they do for us rather than what can we do for them and the partnership is being unbalanced by it I feel As Lynn was speaking I was reflecting on the question from our colleague in Oxfam, why does it feel like the development agenda has shriveled to the aid agenda in so much of the government's communications and actually I think the answer lies as much outside of DFID as within DFID um, and proud though I am of my time in office, it's inconceivable that the government of which I was part would have made anything like the progress on the development agenda that we made, but for the actions of the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister. And in that sense, having um, figures outside of the development ministry driving the development agenda, I think is critical. Now, with humility, I look back 20 years ago just now, and I think, who were the international leaders? There was Blair, Schroeder, there was um, Clinton. It was a relatively benign period in which to be trying to achieve significant advances on the broader development agenda. But, but again, I think DFID has its role to play. I chaired the Cabinet Subcommittee on Trade when I was the Development Secretary by agreement and at the request of the Prime Minister. I have concerns that it, with the new Ministry for Trade, um, concern for pro-poor trade agreements are not going to be particularly high up this government's agenda. Yeah, Andrew. I mean, on the prosperity fund, I sort of I agree with Lynn. If I had, if I would have resisted the prosperity fund being set up in quite the way it has been, I have to confess, had I still been Secretary of State when it was set up, which I, which I, which I wasn't. Um, I, and also I agree that the use of the word aid, we should talk about development, uh, yeah. not about aid, wherever we, we can. Um, I, think, I think I disagree slightly with Douglas on who are the great characters. I think that uh, when um, I think David Cameron and George Osborne were a powerful uh, force for uh, international development around the world. And after all, 
If I uh, had told you before 2010 that the Conservatives, after 2008 and before 2010, the Conservatives were going to be the party that would finally introduce the 0.7, a lot of people in this room would not have believed me, but we, we did. So I give credit to David and to George uh, for, for that. And finally, the point that I sort of tried to intervene on, the results are not the same as targets. You know, we, these results that we seek, the British taxpayer seeks to buy in international development, results which have been agreed, not imposed by Britain, but been agreed through a partnership agreement with the different countries with which we work. These are results that we are seeking to buy. And if at the end of the period in which those, those results have not been delivered, but they've nearly been delivered or they've almost been delivered, I would have been very happy and was very happy as a Secretary of State to explain to the public in, an, in a sensible and elevated debate why you haven't quite reached the results that you were seeking to reach, but what the journey along the way has been, why it's the right thing to do, why it's in our national interest, why it's in the interest of the people we're seeking to assist, and how, you know... Pursuing and securing these results is a noble thing which we should continue to do. Great. Okay, we've got some questions over here. On the panel, uh, <coughs> the past is another country, and I have two questions about where next, which is in the title of the session. The first is about DFID. Uh, in 1997, before the election, Claire Short asked me to write her a paper on whether we should have an independent department. And I have to say, when I wrote that paper, having talked to everybody, it seemed to me very finely balanced because the UK ODA, well led by Linda Chalker, did a lot of things actually that other countries didn't do. It had humanitarian and development, it had technical assistance and finance, it was involved in debt relief and trade uh, and so on. Claire, like her successors, ignored my advice, uh, probably rightly, and said that the main reason for having DFID as an independent department was you would get a better quality minister, secretary of state, uh, or you know, under secretary of state, and we've seen that's probably true. But does that continue, is the question. And I know that before the last Sorry, does, election... Does, does, does what continue? That does DFID continue? Is, yeah, does right. continue? Yeah. Before the last election, there was a full-time director, right, and the gossip says, in the FCO, drawing up plans for the FCO takeover of DFID. I'd love to hear what the panel think about that. And then the other question is about spending on new things. And Andrew, you wrote uh, an article in The Telegraph, I think, earlier in the summer, saying that we should use more aid money for uh, supporting the military in fragile states. I heard... Uh, David Owen making the same point on BBC Parliament TV yesterday. Uh, if the DAC rules were changed, would you expect that to happen? And if so, how would we guarantee value for money? You've often argued for aid to be untied. If we were to spend on the military, should that aid be untied so that, for example, you know, Bangladesh or Senegal could also bid for UK aid support of military intervention? Thank you very much for those two questions and your three ones online. Thank you. Oh, over here. Thanks. Hello, I'm uh, John Clark with the Partnership for Transparency Fund, and, and I have other hats as well. Um, I suppose the nub of concern that we have today is whether the results agenda uh, focuses overwhelming attention on. Um, and creates an importance of development measurables rather than a focus on um, achieving development importance. And uh, to me, if you, if you uh, look at the report, I think one part of the report uh, then lists the areas, the six areas of importance, of the key areas of concern for DFID. 
all of which um, humanitarian assistance, education, immunization and health, water and sanitation, nutrition, family planning, all of these are important, but they're, in, they're, they're, they're services, welfare and uh, uh, social services as opposed to development. Um, I believe that, uh, particularly in areas where you have fragile states, post-conflict states, uh, states where the government is ambivalent at the least about eradicating poverty, the importance of community-driven development, the importance of a participation agenda, the importance of uh, strengthening civil society uh, is the only assured way that development assistance can be tr translated into development. And it's, the concern that I have is that if you only focus on those things, those service things, which are the easiest things to put numbers to, then one drifts away from those areas which are arguably of greatest development importance. Okay, thanks very much. And then one in the front here. Thanks. I mean, it's good to have this debate, I have to say. Uh, and uh, um, I'm, I'm actually, I think, more confused than I was about where we might be going. Um, one very practical thing, though, everybody's talking in the backdrop it would be achieved 0.7%, and the kind of underlying assumption is we're awash with aid money to spend. And I agree it should be development. I always argued that it was the International Development Committee, not the Overseas Aid Committee. Um, but in reality, we've dramatically increased our commitment to humanitarian, which may be a good thing, but isn't development, uh, or it, it can contribute to development, or stop de-development, but um, we've seen a 20% fall in the value of the pounds. So in reality, our development budgets are being cut right across the field, uh, not increased, as the Daily Mail would have you believe. Um, and yet we have concentrated our commitment to doing more in more difficult, more risky environments. And I have to say to Andrew here, that is exactly the area where it's more and more difficult to quantify. How do you prove you've stopped a war? How do you calculate the benefit of whether you've limited a conflict or not? There has to be some kind of gut instinct that it's the right thing to do. And that's the one area where there does need to be a discussion between the Foreign Office and DFID in terms of agreeing those objectives. But again, I agree with, with Andrew. We then should have them openly and publicly presented. As a final point, I would say to people, when we were concentrating on the poorest people in the poorest countries, why were we still expanding our budget in Nigeria or Pakistan? The answer was because our political connections with Nigeria or Pakistan are such that we should do it. I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but that wasn't the way it was presented. Um, and I would suggest we need to have a more honest debate about the interaction between development and politics. And a more also honest rebuttal of the Daily Mail, which is we're not awash money. We may be big aid providers and we're good at it, but it's actually under pressure. Okay, that's great. And then I, I just, I want to take in this uh, woman on the aisle um, here. Hi, I'm from um, ICF. I, I, first, I want to say, actually, I think there's a lot to be proud of with DFID. Um, I've worked in you know, the World Bank and I saw what DFID were doing, actually very small amounts of money on the Governance Partnership Fund, where it was really pushing political economy. And there was a whole shift in the bank in three years that I was there because of actually a really small amount of money. So I think we should, everyone here cares about development and I think we should make sure this is feeling a bit of a negative conversation as well. And I think we should actually also say there's a lot to be proud of. Um, the two questions I have, one is linked to different civil servants. Um, we can see the soft power that different civil servants bring when they are experienced, when they're in country, when they're working 
to, ne to negotiate. And they, there's a huge amount of power in convening. And a lot of that can be lost if you're reducing civil servants' numbers, particularly compared with escalating funds. So mm. a question about that. And the second thing is we're in the private sector also getting a bit um, whacked on the head, to say the least, in terms of you know, whether we care whether we're in just for money, et cetera. And I would say that actually, you know, we're working in some of the most fragile states with DFID, in partnership with DFID. And some of it is about trusting us to support that. We care about development as well and thinking about, you know, adaptive programming, making sure that there is, is still adaptive programming is key. Um, and thinking about how we can contribute to the results framework in a sensible uh, uh, way, which are thinking both about qualitative stories of change and quantitative, mm. but which are not predictable because you don't know how it's going to work to start. So. Mm. Thank okay, you. thank you very much indeed. Range of, range of points there um, are coming towards the end. Uh, Craig, do you want to pick out something? Yeah, okay. sure. I mean, I'll pick up directly on, on this point. I think, you know, um, one thing we haven't spoken about too much today is how DFID staff and implementers take on board different political agendas and work with them. And I think, absolutely right. I mean, we can be proud of the development um, of, of DFID and the way that staff interpret these agendas and make them work practically um, on the ground. I think the challenge with, with 0.7 and all the other debates relates to what you said there about if you don't have um, increasing staff numbers as you, as you have increasing budget numbers, you have a dilemma there. Did, is it that we, we had too many and therefore it's only appropriate, or is it actually that we're not funding it enough? And I think one of the, the big pressure that has come on dividend aid spending, um, I would say since 2007, actually in 2008 with the financial crisis, is partly brought on by we have 0.7, we have the results agenda, we have less DFID staff relative to spend, working in fragile states, all these things that we're talking about. So there's a huge amount of pressure. I actually think DFID does a fantastic job within those pressures, but we also have to be honest that those pressures are real um, and we have to work with them and think of sensible ways around them, or through them. Great, thanks. Douglas. Um, let me just offer a couple of points. Firstly, in relation to Simon's question, how safe is DFID? Um, it feels less safe, ironically, than 0.7 right now. Not just because of the legislative commitment on, for which all parties deserve credit in terms of 0.7, but because if the public reports are to be believed, I defer to Andrew's knowledge of the internal workings of the Tory party, as esteemed a figure as Boris Johnson actively sought to fold the department into the FCO as recently as six months ago. <coughs> and the compromise that was reached was that Rory Stewart and um, Alistair, both of whom are individuals who I rate very highly, will answer jointly to the Secretary of State at DFID and the Foreign Secretary. And in that sense, it feels to me that the departmental integrity of DFID is going to have to continue to be worked to secure. On 0.7, my worry is that the headline commitment will stay but the Conservative Party manifesto commitment to work with others to try and alter the definition of what is order scorable under the DAC rules um, anticipates um, potential difficulties for the future. And in that sense, I think, again, even if 0.7 remains, there is an argument, of course, not just about quantity, but also about the quality of how that order scorable money is being spent in the future. And just to pick up the challenge of not sounding too uh, down at the end, I mean, listen, I, um, I can't tell you what a privilege it was to be the Secretary of State for the Department of International Development. I'm sure Andrew and Lynn feel the same about their time as ministers in that department. Um, let me just say this. It was in February 2005, I was helping prepare the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, before I was Secretary of State, for Prime Minister's questions one morning. And I said, I'm terribly sorry, I'm going to have to leave slightly early. And Tony Blair slightly cocked his eyebrow as if, why do you think you're entitled to leave my office early? And I said, Nelson Mandela's speaking in Trafalgar Square and I'm really keen to go and hear him. 
And standing in that crowd in February 2005, Nelson Mandela said, sometimes it falls to a generation to be great. And I think it's worth recognising, as you've obliged us to do, all of us in this room and the broader development community in the UK has played a part in making sure we're that generation. And for that, I am eternally grateful. Andrew. Very good point. Um, well, just pick up a couple of things. First of all, from Simon. Um, uh, I think that there was a real possibility that um, there might have been changes made had, the, had my party got an enormous majority at the general election. And uh, uh, the reality is that the, the, the single key thing that meant that the first commitment uh, of the Prime Minister in the election campaign was to the point seven. The first thing was the visit the previous week by Bill Gates to London, which was brilliantly timed. I can only believe that there was the almighty, the almighty intervene to do this. But he, it, was, it was, and he made a very powerful argument. And uh, those of us within the Conservative Party who were preparing to mobilise on this issue uh, were told just to wait two days, and the Prime Minister made it her first commitment. Now, by the end of the election, there were some difficult noises going on about the, the rules. And that's why I say, you know, the money is vital, but the rules are absolutely important. And if the rules are weakened, then DFID will get plundered by other stronger departments, including the Foreign Office. So, so uh, keeping the rules is very important. I believe that the rules should be tweaked to allow... I think it's perfectly fair. I wrote this article, which Simon referred to, with General Richards about how there needs to be a, a change in the rules to uh, accommodate some of Britain's military spending. All I need to say, I think, is if you look at what Britain did in Sierra Leone, which uh, was an absolutely brilliant intervention by Tony Blair, uh, then you can see how that was basically a development intervention as well as a military intervention. So I think there, that, that's where the argument needs to go. But I would never suggest that Britain should change the rules unilaterally. It has to be done by agreement. And the, the, the point is now that Parliament power, as everyone knows in here, in a, in a hung Parliament, passes from the Cabinet Room to the floor of the House of Commons. And in my judgment, there is no way the House of Commons will agree to changing the rules uh, unilaterally. There might well be a case for making some tweaks to it. That's a matter for the, the DAC, uh, but it won't be done uh, unilaterally. And just the other, last point I would make uh, to the distinguished uh, former chairman of the Select uh, Committee. Uh, it's true that the, there has been an increase in the, the balance in humanitarian spend, but that is because we are facing the, the, what I think is the biggest catastrophe in terms of migration and movement since the Second World War, namely the crisis in Syria, where this Second World country of 22 million people, half of those people are now on the move inside Syria, in the countries surrounding, who are, who are straining under the weight of doing their moral and international duty, and of course more widely than that. So it's not perhaps surprising that there has been something of a skewing of the humanitarian uh, expenditure. And, you know, as you rightly say, uh, spending money in Nigeria and Pakistan is edgy. But the thrust of the spending in Nigeria was to help Nigeria spend their enormous revenues in an honest and transparent way. And some of that work that's been done by DFID has been enormously helpful to President Buhari in recovering very billions of pounds of money stolen. So that seemed to me to be a, a very important thing for us to do. And in Pakistan, the great aim was to, how could, what difference could we make in Pakistan that, that was realistic? It was to try and ensure that millions more girls went to school. 
and, and boys too. And by using our taxpayers' money to demonstrate that that was the right, you know, in their interests and in everyone's interests. There are more girls out of school in Pakistan, I think, than in, in, any, other, in any other country in the world. So, so uh, that was the rationale, although, as you rightly say, it was not necessarily consistent with some of the other uh, things that we were, were doing. Andrew, thanks. Lynn. Um, I hope DFID continues. I, I now speak for my party on energy and climate change, despite the fact there is no longer a Department of Energy and Climate Change. We retained a spokesperson because <laughs> without that focus, I mean, if DFID wasn't there, you would not have the same focus that you have now. You, you just would lose power. And it's a hard enough fight with a department there and with the Prime Minister's commitment, it's still a fight because of austerity, uh, because of the Daily Mail, for all the things that people have said. And I think DFID um, is a very special department, and it goes to what you were saying about the civil servants. I've never met a breed quite like them in their determination to actually deliver what is the mission of DFID, and who have the ear of people in friendship. I mean, they're the most incredible group of people I've ever met in my life, and it was an absolute privilege. I always call it the best two years of my life, and I'm always surprised when people say it's not the political main track or, you know, not the job you're looking for, because I actually think if you go into politics to change the world, that kind of is the best place to do it. Lynn, thanks very much indeed for that. Um, we've had a terrific uh, hour and a half as, it, as it's been. We clearly could go on for another hour. The things we have not talked about include you know, precise lessons for development that one might draw from uh, DFID's experience at China, the impact of Brexit, and so on. Um, I have to wait for another time, uh, even another 20 years. Um, uh, we were debating before we came in whether we thought DFID would um, uh, be there in 20 years. And I, I think there was a, a consensus of... Uh, yes, though no one wanted to predict really any aspect of British politics for more than uh, um, even tw 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> It's an exceptionally lively week in Parliament for a start. Listen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, thanks for your questions. Thanks to those of you who've sent questions in online. I'm sorry if I couldn't get to all the questions, which I couldn't. Many interesting uh, ones here. And thanks to the panel. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.